The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're now in our third week in our study from the book of Genesis called Origins, Redemption from the Roots Up, where we've been looking at family of origin issues through the lens of the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and next week we will be looking at Joseph. In week one, we talked about generational patterns of sin. And Paul led us through this discussion, this exploration of looking at how sin can be passed down as a pattern for living in family systems. In week two, we looked at generational patterns of relationship. That is, the way that we relate to others is oftentimes formed in our family of origin. And sometimes that can be helpful, sometimes that can be unhelpful. This week, we are looking at generational patterns in the stories we tell ourselves. Generational patterns in the stories that we tell ourselves. Week one was Abraham, week two was Isaac, and this week we'll be focusing on Jacob. I'm going to give this to you really in four scenes. First of all, my story, then Jacob's story, then your story, and then God's story. So those are three or four thought folders for you to be aware of as we move through our time today. This will be less of an exegetical verse by verse, but more of an unfolding of the story of Jacob as we, as we see in him a pattern that we all follow. You see, we all have narrative scripts. These are the stories that we tell ourselves in order to make sense of the world. We're, we're not just experiencing life as it is. Rather, we are constantly interpreting the meaning of the experiences that we have. God has constructed us in such a way that we are meaning seekers. The meaning or or the interpretation that we give to an experience becomes a part of our internal belief system that forms how we navigate life. It forms our understanding of our worth, our identity, our purpose and meaning in in life. And the problem is that sometimes these interpretations, these conclusions that we reach, sometimes these stories we tell ourselves are wrong. Our interpretations can be skewed. And as they distort, it also distorts our behavior. Now, why? Because we act based upon what we actually believe at the deepest places of our heart. It was November 24th, 1996. I sat as a 19-year-old kid in the sanctuary at Applegate Christian Fellowship. Only an hour before, I told my parents that I had been arrested on drug charges and that I was looking at prison time if I was convicted. 
To my surprise, they showed me grace. They wept with me, brokenhearted at the predicament that I had gotten myself in. To my surprise, they showed me grace. I had a real tangible example in front of me of the grace of God because rather than being angry with me or disappointed in me, they hurt for me. And they said to me, well, Jeremy, why don't, why don't you come to church with us? We'd really love for you to, to come and just be with us at church tonight. And so I was happy to oblige, mostly because they didn't kick me out. I was pretty stoked about that. And I was happy to make them happy in whatever way that I could. And so there I landed in that sanctuary, November 24th of 1996, as a 19-year-old kid. You know, as I looked around, it seemed like everybody my age had a plan. It seemed like everybody kind of knew where they were going, kids were going off to college and whatever else, but I was a drug addict and broken in so many ways, lots of dysfunction. And really, at that moment in my life, I felt like the only thing that I brought to the table was my brokenness, my sin. Now, the reason that I was addicted to drugs was, was multifaceted. Uh, I couldn't see it then as clearly as I can now, but, but I grew up in a home with loving parents. Uh, they had a deep faith in Jesus, leaning slightly charismatic. My dad got saved in a Pentecostal church on an Indian reservation, and I think that combination sort of imprinted upon his mind. The problem was that my parents were somewhat boundaryless. They came out of the hippie movement, and, you know, it was this idea of, like, free love and just accept everyone. And that left me open to being abused, their lack of discernment about who was safe and who wasn't left me open to encountering things that I was not prepared for. And as a result, I experienced some abuse that ultimately caused a deep wound in my life and a deep sense of shame in my soul. Feeling bad about who I was and what I had experienced left me self-conscious, left me hungry for acceptance, I formed habits of secrecy and sneakiness. I eventually found myself getting involved in things like theater. I really was drawn to theater because it was a place where I could pretend to be someone else for a moment. And then afterwards, people would clap at my performance. I ran in social circles that were also dysfunctional, it seems that when you are broken on the inside, the people that are you, you are most drawn to are the people who are broken in similar ways. I related best with others who were wounded individuals who found various ways to make themselves feel better as well. And my sense of shame affected my desires, my behaviors as a people pleaser, and even the friends that I chose. Now, one of the ways that you can lift 
the feeling of shame, like I'm bad, like I'm, I'm broken as a human for just a moment is by medicating with substance abuse. I started experimenting with weed when I was in the third grade. My best friend stole it from his older brother. By high school, I moved into psychedelics and meth and a whole host of other things. By the time I was 18, I was fully in the throes of addiction, dealing on the side. And at this moment, on November 24th, 1996, I found myself sitting in the sanctuary at Applegate, having just been arrested, wondering about my future, feeling totally worthless. And when the pastor began to speak, he opened with the story of a young man that came into his office who had a history with drug addiction and was in trouble with the law. Now immediately, I looked at my parents and I thought, you guys ratted me out. <laughs> but the longer I sat there, the more I began to realize that God was using a human vessel to speak to me in a supernatural way. As I continued to listen, I felt as though he was speaking directly to me and the pastor. He, he talked about how God introduces brokenness into our lives, not because he delights in our pain, but to expose our weakness and to produce dependence on the one who is greater than we are. The pastor concluded his message with a prayer that all who were experiencing brokenness would learn to lean on Jesus. It is a prayer that continues to be effective over my life to this day. I'm learning to see my personal story within the context of the story of God. The story of a God who is loving and forgiving and gracious. The story of a God who is working even at this very moment in and through people partnering with them, using them in the redemption of the world. Here's the big idea that I want you to take away from today. If you are listening, this is kind of the main point that I want you to grab a hold of. The stories we tell ourselves influence the choices we make. That's the first part. And the second part is the gospel gives us a better story to tell. The stories we tell ourselves influence the choices that we make, but the gospel gives us a better story to tell. That was my story. Let's take a look at Jacob's story. Jacob and Esau were brothers. They were twins. And when they were born, Esau came out, came out all hairy and Red, and so they called him creatively Harry. Jacob's little infant arm was holding on to the heel of his hairy red brother as he came out of the womb, and the parents thought of the struggle of the two brothers while in Rebekah's womb. And they thought that it was significant that Jacob was trying to trip his brother up in the race to become the firstborn. And so they named him Jacob. The name Jacob means he takes by the heel or, or he cheats. He's tripping his brother. 
Now, this little story becomes a marker for both of the boys as they continued to grow. You see, Harry, Esau, got even hairier as time went on. And Jacob got even sneakier. Jacob got Esau to sell his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of stew. And later, Jacob, at the prompting of his manipulative mother, tricks his blind father into giving Jacob the blessing while he pretended to be his older brother, Esau. Jacob takes goat skins with the fur still on them and he ties them to his arm and his neck so that Isaac will think that he's his hairy brother. He put on Esau's clothes so that he would smell like Esau. And though Isaac intended the blessing for Esau, Jacob, the heel-catching cheater, swindles him out of it. And in response, Esau begins talking about how he's just waiting for dad to die so that he can kill his brother. He plans to kill Jacob. Now, once again, mom intervenes in this moment. Mom leads the way in manipulating to get the outcome that she wants for Jacob. And so Rebecca tells Isaac that she can't stand the idea of her son marrying women from among the Hittites because Esau had two Hittite wives. And the Bible tells us in chapter 26, verse 35, that they made life continually bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You see, she knows just the right pressure point to apply her manipulative skills so that she can spin the narrative and be believable to her husband, Isaac. She's completely over the top with her expressiveness to Isaac. In chapter 27, verse 46 of Genesis, she cries out, If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so, Jacob is sent away from his family to go and search for a wife from among his own clan. Isaac recommends that he go to the house of Bethuel, which is Rebekah's father, to look for a wife that will meet his mother's standards. And Rebekah's manipulation works. Jacob leaves before Esau has a chance to kill him, And on the way out, Isaac gives a blessing to Jacob. Listen to what he says. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham, which was Isaac's father, to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. And with that, Jacob leaves. Exiled because of the tension between him and his brother. Now, while Jacob is on his way to the territory where his grandfather lives and his uncle Laban, Jacob has an encounter with God in a dream. He sees this ladder that stretches from heaven all the way to the earth, and the angels are going up and down on this ladder. And God is standing above it. And God begins speaking to Jacob. 
God says to him in chapter 28, verses 13 to 15, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Now, when Jacob wakes up, he says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he gives that place, this place where he had a a dream, the name Bethel, Bethel, which means house of God. Now, I point this out in Jacob's story for two reasons. I want you to see, first of all, that Jacob, on his way to his grandfather's house, is not in pursuit of God, but God is in pursuit of Jacob. And God promises to bless him. And the promises that were connected to Jacob were not dependent upon Jacob's character, were not dependent upon his faithfulness. They were dependent upon the character and nature of God. You see, God had made a covenant promise to Abraham that he intended to fulfill. And he reiterated that promise to Isaac, and then he reiterated that promise now to Jacob. Jacob was not in pursuit of God, but God was in pursuit of Jacob. And the second thing that I want you to see is that I want you to see that although Jacob had a sort of cultural belief in God through his family, he had not had a personal encounter with God. This was the beginning of the faith that he inherited becoming his own. It was the beginning of Jacob's faith in God, moving towards a relationship that was personal with God. So, in response to this first encounter that he has with God, Jacob then makes a vow. He makes a promise. And I want you to notice the immature nature of his response to God. Listen to what he says. This is from Genesis 28, verses 20 and 22. He says, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to, to you. I want you to notice this. Jacob is trying to make a deal with God. He's trying to negotiate with him. You see, the story that Jacob tells himself is that he can manipulate God with the promise of worship. He can get the blessing if he just gives God the thing that he wants. He has this story running in the back of his mind that says God gives blessing when he gets what he wants. 
This may be something he learned from his own experience growing up under Isaac. Remember, Isaac told Esau, hey, uh, go, I'll bless you, but I'll, I'll bless you once you get me the, the venison stew that I like. Then I'll bless you. Very performance-based. Based on his values of trying to get ahead in life, values that he inherited from his mother, Rebecca, he is relating to God from his own interpretation of the world. He says, I, I want the blessing. And mom taught me that the blessing is so valuable that you should do whatever it takes, even if that means manipulation. The way to get the blessing is by appeasing God the way I appeased my father. And Jacob attempts to negotiate with God like God is striking some sort of business deal with him, like it's some sort of transactional exercise. I'll bless you, God, if you, if you, if you bless me. Now, Jacob doesn't see this as a problem yet. But God is going to work his cheating, manipulative, deal-chasing ways out of him over time. Well, you say, well, how, how's God going to do that? Well, I'll tell you. He does it by putting Jacob in the presence of someone that will expose what it's like to be in a relationship with him. Jacob leaves Bethel, makes his way to his uncle Laban's house, and upon arrival, he meets his gorgeous cousin, Rachel, at a well. Now, he's so smitten by her that when he realizes that she is from his clan and, and could, in fact, be the wife that he is looking for, he kisses her and then immediately breaks into tears and starts crying. He's overcome with emotion. Rachel runs to tell her father Laban, and Laban greets Jacob with open arms. Jacob also meets the older sister, Leah. Now, the text describes Leah as having weak eyes. Weak eyes. Now, this could mean that Leah couldn't see very well. It could also mean that she was cross-eyed. That she was like, you know. Her name, her name actually means weary. Or it could come from the Akkadian root, Latu, which means cow. Now, given the cultural ideal of giving a name to someone based upon their most dominant attributes, it doesn't appear that Leah was much of a looker. Uh, it doesn't appear that she was married at this time, even though she's the older sister. And whatever the case, she wasn't married and it didn't look like she would be married anytime soon. Now, Jacob lives with them for about a month, and then during that time, Jacob is working for, for Laban, and Laban begins a, a negotiation with him, a conversation with Jacob, asking what his payment should be for the work he's doing. Now, Jacob only has one thing that he wants, he, and her name is Rachel. So Laban strikes a deal with Jacob that he can marry Rachel if he will simply work for 
Laban for seven years. And the Bible says that those seven years seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So finally, the wedding night comes. They throw this big feast. The bride is presented to Jacob, all veiled, her face is covered. He takes her back into his tent. They spend the evening in marital bliss. Now, when Jacob wakes up in the morning, the light begins to pour in through the folds of the tent, and Jacob rolls over to look at his new bride. And as he wipes the sleep from his eyes, he sees next to him not the beautiful Rachel, but the old cross-eyed cow, Leah. Look, I, I didn't write the story in the Bible. I'm just telling you the story that is there. Okay, so if you're angry about having the name Leah or, you know, if there's some offense, that's not on me. I'm just telling you what the text says. Well, Jacob is not too happy about being cheated. He's now on the other side of the coin, the one being cheated. And he approaches Laban about it. And Laban says, it's not so done in our country to give the younger in marriage before the firstborn, but, I, but have I got a deal for you? If you just work for me for another seven years, you, you can have the other daughter too. So Jacob agrees to this arrangement. The tension between him and Laban builds, and the tension between the two sisters builds, and it creates all kinds of family drama. For the next 20 years, Jacob and Laban go back and forth trying to out-cheat the other. And at one point, Jacob agreed to taking all the spotted and speckled sheep among the flock in exchange for continuing to serve Laban. Ultimately, though, he had this, this wonderful scheme, this superstitious scheme, for how he was going to get all the offspring of the flock to become spotted and speckled. What he did is he, is he carved some sticks with spots and speckles on them, and he put them in front of the feeding and watering troughs of the animals so that when the animals would come and drink water, which was the time where oftentimes breeding would take place, they would behold the sticks with the spots and the speckles on them, And then in his mind, that will produce some sort of sheep. It's like this grand scheme that he has. Well, lo and behold, it works. Now, just point of reference here. Remember his story? Remember Jacob's story? Getting the blessing no matter what it takes, even if it means manipulation? That's exactly what he's doing. He is hoping that the spotted and speckled sticks will produce spotted and speckled sheep and it works but later on in the story God says that wasn't the sticks that was me (laughs) I was blessing you God eventually takes credit for what had happened it appeared to work from Jacob's perspective but really it was God's work the entire time his plan to establish the family that he had promised to bless it was a part of him fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob's manipulation now during the 20 years of working for Laban his uncle changed the conditions of his wages 10 times 10 times things went back and forth Jacob trying to cheat Laban Laban cheating Jacob and finally things reach a boiling point 
Jacob decides to flee with his wives, with his children, and his servants, and his possessions. He tricks Laban into leaving for three days. And Laban doesn't know for three days that Jacob is gone. He, when he discovers it, he gives chase, intending to attack Jacob. But once again, because of God's covenant promise, God intervenes and warns Laban not to do what he's thinking of doing. Genesis 31, 24. Now, what Jacob didn't know was that his wife, Rachel, had stolen a bunch of her father's idols before they left. Now, apparently, the daughter had learned a few tricks of her own from her father, Laban, about how to get ahead in life. Lie, cheat, and steal. This leads to Laban searching for his idols among Jacob's belongings, he ends up, finding, ends up finding nothing because Rachel has hidden these idols in her camel bags and then sat upon her cam- camel bags and hid them, making up a lie once again. After finding nothing, Laban makes a deal with Jacob to say, don't ever come back and I won't ever step into your territory either. And just when the drama seems to be over, Jacob is making his way back to his homeland, back to his family of origin, and he sends some of his servants to go and tell his family that he'll be coming home after 20 years. And when his servants return, Jacob, the heel-grabbing cheat, hears that Esau is coming to meet him in the desert, along with 400 men. And immediately... Jacob remembers how much his brother hated him when he left. And he begins interpreting the meaning of of the information that his servants had brought to him that Esau is coming with 400 men. And the story he tells himself is, is my brother still hates me. There There is no way that I could simply go back to the family, that I could simply be forgiven. I'm dead My heel-grabbing cheating is finally coming back on me. Jacob immediately goes to prayer in his anxiety. This shows that he's growing in his relationship with the Lord. And Jacob said, oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. This is from Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Notice the change in tone. He's no longer negotiating with God. He says, I'm not even worthy of the blessing that you've given me up to this point. All I can count on is that you would be faithful to your covenant promise. You caused me to be protected. You said that I would be multiplied. So on the one hand, we see some maturity in Jacob. He recognizes that he is not worthy 
and has not earned the blessing of God. And then on the other hand, he's not entirely sure that God will come through for him. This narrative script or the story that he is telling himself forms the basis of the actions that he takes next. Based on the story he is telling himself, he resorts to the tools he has always used, which is manipulation. This is what he does. He takes 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels. By the way, coming to a store near you, the next new milk to appear on the shelves, camel milk. I think it's going to be a hot item. 30 milking camels and their, great, and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And then he begins laying them out as gifts to his brother. Now he separates each one in a drove by themselves and then creates space in between them. He does this in such a way that as Esau is coming to him, he will encounter each of those droves of animals that he's separated out from his possessions. He will encounter each one of those as a gift in succession. And then he instructs the servants that accompany each drove to say, when Esau says, hey, what are these? They're to say to Esau, they belong to your servant Jacob, but they are a present to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he, Jacob, is behind us. Now, Jacob is hoping that his gifts will appease his brother and spare him the possible repercussions of his sin against Esau. Again, the story that Jacob believes is that forgiveness is the result of appeasement. It doesn't come as a gift. Next, Jacob places his family on one side of the brook, a brook called Jabuk, along with all of his possessions, and he remains on the one side of the river by himself. And this is where we pick up the text. And Genesis 32, take a look, beginning at verse 22 with me in your Bibles. The same night he arose, and he took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Jacob begins to wrestle with this man. In verse 26, excuse me, in verse 24, Jacob is left alone. He wrestles with him till the breaking of the day. Now the text gives us one line to describe the length of this wrestling match, and that is that it lasted all night until the breaking of the day. This wrestling match is with God himself. This is one of the Old Testament passages in which the text suggests that there may be here a Christophany, that is, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus showing up before he's born as the babe of Bethlehem. God in the flesh. Now we think this because at the end of the passage, Jacob tells uh, us that he recognizes that he saw God face to face and lived to tell about it. Likely it is Jesus who was wrestling with Jacob on the shore of this river 
until the sun starts coming up. Now, when Jacob doesn't give up, something happens. Take a look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint and, and, as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When Jacob doesn't give up, something happens. During the wrestling, the angel of the Lord, the representative here, likely Jesus, reaches down and touches his hip socket, and his hip is dislocated. This is not an even match between the one that Jacob wrestles and Jacob. Though Jacob thought he was really going to move Jesus into submission and get the blessing from him, really, it was the Lord who was calling the shots. It was the Lord who was the strong one who was in control of the match the entire time. At this point, Jacob can only hold on in the pain of it all. He's no longer fighting to win. He's simply hanging on in the pain and crying out. There's this interesting passage in Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, that recounts this same story. And from the perspective of the prophet Hosea, he tells us that Jacob was weeping and crying out for blessing, refusing to let go. And the prophet compares it to the way that he clung to the heel of his brother when coming from the womb. Here he is, the heel-grabbing cheat, trying to get the blessing of God through his human strength and effort. Notice verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. As Jacob holds on to the heel of this angel of the Lord, he is weeping. No longer trying to strong arm him, but he is desperately crying out in agony. At this point, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, looks down at the weeping Jacob and asks a very important question. What is your name? It's a moment of truth. To speak his name, Jacob will have to acknowledge the story that has been told over his life by others, the story that he has told himself for his entire life. He will have to acknowledge that he is the heel-grabbing cheater. He'll have to identify himself with his name. And in response, what is interesting is that Jesus changes his name. He says, I don't want you to be called that anymore. Here's your new name. It's Israel. Jacob had to acknowledge the story that has been told over his life by others and the story he has told himself 
his entire life. This name change is significant because it marks the moment of brokenness where Jacob is forced to confront his, the narr- this narrative story over his life. The pain of a hip dislocation, the night of wrestling with God, has led him to the crisis of self-confrontation. And God is the one who initiates it. God to Jacob. Who do you think you are? Jacob to God. My name is Jacob. I'm the heel-grabbing sheet that's always trying to get ahead. And how does Jesus respond? By essentially saying, that's not how I describe you. Jesus gives Jacob a new name. And the name Israel means he strives with God or he wrestles with God. Frederick Buechner characterized Jacob's divine encounter at the Jabbok River as the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. I love that. Now Jacob goes on to ask the one that he wrestled with what his name is. But Jacob already knew. Check out verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he, Jesus, in response said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob walks with a limp, coming back across the brook. And every time he's pictured walking in the rest of Genesis, he is leaning upon his staff. Now, if I were to sit down with Jacob, I could ask him questions, and maybe I'll get that opportunity when we make it into the new heavens and the new earth. I I could ask him, Jacob, what was the story you were telling yourself when you thought you needed to cheat to get ahead? What was the story you were telling yourself when you, when you thought Esau was incapable of forgiving you, that there's no way that forgiveness could just be a gift? It only happens through appeasement. What was the story you were telling yourself when you fought all night trying to get God to submit to you, did you really think you were going to win that? Here we see Jacob's story. Question, what's your story? What are the stories that you tell yourself? And where did those stories come from? We have this constant internal dialogue that's running in the back of our minds. I, I always mess things up, we say. I, I'm not good enough. People will judge me if I... I don't know that I'm deserving of love. I'm always right. I can never be wrong. I'm, I'm too old for... I'm too young to 
I don't deserve success. You know, you just can't ever really trust anyone, can you? I, I can't handle failure. I, I have to nail this. It has to be perfect. If it's not perfect, it's a complete failure. I, I don't really know that I'm all that interesting. I don't know that I have the strength. I'm, I think I'm too weak. These and thousands upon thousands more stories that we tell ourselves. I want to give you four effects of the stories that we tell ourselves. You see, we are constantly interpreting and giving meaning in response to the experiences that we have in life. Whenever we go through something, it's not just an event that we remember. We interpret the event. We ascribe meaning to the event. And that meaning, that interpretation, forms the script, forms the narrative, forms the story that we tell ourselves in response. And when the stories we tell ourselves are wrong, we respond wrongly. Here's four effects of the stories we tell ourselves. They are wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds. Wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds. The first one, when we tell a wrong story, they cause wounds that don't heal. We say things like, my dad was emotionally cold towards me, Therefore, he didn't love me. Is that true? May not be. But it's a wound that remains in the heart. Because I grew up in a broken home, I am broken. Because I was abused, I'm worth less. When we tell ourselves the wrong story, there is a wound that we receive and it affects the way that we live. Second thing, lies. These stories we tell ourselves form lies that we believe and live out of. We say things like, because my my needs were not met, I can't depend on anyone else. Is that the truth or is that a lie? Because I was ignored, my thoughts and feelings don't matter. Is that truth or is that a lie? Because I was abused, I'm continuously soiled and ashamed of who I am. Is that a truth or is that a lie? Because I grew up in chaos, it is my job to keep the peace. I have to bring calm to everything around me. Is that the truth? Or is that a lie? Wounds, lies, vows. When we tell ourselves the wrong story, oftentimes we respond by making vows or promises or agreements. Vows that we make with ourselves sometimes and sometimes they can even be vows that we make with God. And these vows become controlling influences in our lives. 
We say, because I was hurt, I'll never be vulnerable again. That's the vow. I promise I'm never going to put myself in that situation again. Because it was a man that overpowered me, I will never trust men. Because I saw the destruction of negative emotions, I will never feel too strongly. I will shut down the feelings that are, that are strong in others because feeling things strongly is dangerous. Wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds. When we believe the wrong story, they form strongholds in our hearts that the enemy can use to continually trip us up in life. This usually comes in the form of a you statement in your internal dialogue instead of an I statement. From these spiritual strongholds, the enemy shoots his fiery darts at us and he says, you can't be vulnerable. It will only ever be used against you. You are never going to succeed. You always fail. You feel bad about who you are. Therefore, you don't deserve love. You don't deserve acceptance. But what you do deserve is to feel better. You should feel better by, insert your addiction here. Wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds all brought into our lives and introduced by the stories that we tell ourselves. So how do we flip the script? How do we change the narrative? We, what do we do in response to this? Fortunately, the answer does not come from us. It comes from God. It is God's story. We must learn a better story to tell. God has given us a better story through the gospel. It is the story that makes sense of our lives when life doesn't make sense. It tells us that God is the one who can redeem anything, that our lives have value, meaning, and purpose, that God has placed infinite value on me, and then he proved it, he backed it up by laying down his life in my place upon the cross. I can be vulnerable because I'm loved as I am. His spirit has been placed in me and I don't fight my addiction battles on my own. I fight them with God in me. And I'm learning by the grace of God to surrender to his spirit and live out of that power. His truth exposes the lies and gives me something better to believe. He has erased my shame through the death of his son on the cross and nothing is beyond his power to redeem. Even death itself cannot stop the purposes of God and he has made me a part of that eternal plan. That's what the gospel tells us. It tells us a better story. And listen, as disciples of Jesus, he is constantly wrestling with us in life. He is again and again bringing us to the crisis of self-confrontation. We are all wrestling at the Brook Jabuk. He is constantly asking us, who do you say that you are? 
And when we answer, the follow-up comes. That's not how I think of you. Let me give you a new name for yourself. Let me tell you what I've created you for. You see, this is why life in the kingdom is so powerful. It enables us to change the narrative of our lives by telling a new story that we can live out of. So if you're, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, what, what do I do to change the stories that I've been telling myself? I want to give you some practical advice. How do I partner with God in changing my story? First, first piece of advice, ready? Preach the gospel to yourself often. Remind yourself of what God has said and done on your behalf. Remind yourself that you are forgiven. Remind yourself that you are loved. Remind yourself that you are empowered by the Spirit and that you are called for a purpose in the kingdom of God, that you are being shaped in the image of God's Son, that you are headed for perfection and eternity. Remind yourself of the gospel again and again and again and again and again because you can't hear it enough. Preach the gospel to yourself. Second thing, practice humility. When wrestling with God, there is a guaranteed outcome. You're going to lose. There's always a guaranteed winner, and it's not you. Yield easier and more often. You see, we don't see ourselves clearly, and that is why the disciplines of confession of sin, of repentance, of receiving and appropriating presently the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, why receiving that on a daily basis becomes so essential. It reorients how we think about ourselves. It puts us in a place of humility. I am dependent upon you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Unless I abide in you, I will bear no fruit. It puts us in the posture under the lordship of Jesus in life. We become receivers and recipients. It is a practice of the pattern of humbling ourselves before God and saying, you, what you say is right. Third thing, build community. You see, we need the voices of those around us who are trustworthy. We need to be known. Often we are blind to the things that we actually believe, the stories we tell ourselves, and we need to listen to the trustworthy counsel of those around us who see us from outside of ourselves. We need community. Fourth thing, learn and rehearse Scripture. Learn and rehearse Scripture. Our own sense of sinfulness leaves us with many lies to sort out. And when we add the many stories that float around in the world, the onslaught of messaging that we receive through various forms of media, we are constantly being lied to. We need the truth. Over the, the, uh, in the bathroom in my, my house, my wife hung this picture. Would you, would you throw that picture up for me? This picture right here. She hung it up, and inside of the, this girl is, is Scripture inside of our head, inside of our mind, and then outside of that are all the lies that come against us in life. My wife put that up in our bathroom so that our girls, when they were growing up, would have to look at it every day as they were getting ready to go somewhere. 
We need this truth repeatedly washing over us, renewing our minds. We need scripture put into our hearts and minds so that we can see ourselves as God sees us. Listen, as disciples of Jesus, we will be brought through this pattern again and again. We'll be brought to the crisis that Jacob encountered. You know, what's interesting is in chapter 35 of Genesis, Jacob has another encounter back at Bethel, the same place where he had the vision, and God tells him his name again. God reminds him again. You know what that tells me? We need to hear it over and over and over. We need that again and again. And we see this pattern all throughout Scripture. Remember, it took only 10 plagues to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. God anoints David as king, but it would take many years before he actually became and acted as a king. Remember Peter was told that he would be a fisher of men, but he kept going back to fishing. Notice the name change of Saul. This is the pattern in our personal lives as well. God does this work in us again and again, bringing us to the crisis. Who are you? Who have I said you are? This is your name. This is what I've called you to. This is your value. This is your meaning. This is your purpose in life. Will you believe what I've said? As the worship team comes up, I want to close with a few thoughts. We're all encountering Jesus in such a way that reorients our identity to see ourselves through who who he says we are instead of the stories that we tell ourselves. November 24th, 1996, that is the day that God began to tell me a different story and to give me a new name. When the pastor finished the teaching, He explained that God put Jacob's hip out of joint to express in his physical life a new spiritual reality. That just like Jacob would walk with a limp, always having to lean on this walking stick, always having to lean on this staff, that was a physical picture of the spiritual reality. He would always have to lean on God. When I heard the gospel, and when I heard that story, it ended up becoming somewhat of a prophetic utterance over my life. This story has been the repeated pattern over me. I have been limping through life ever since. When I received Christ, forgiveness was instantaneous, but learning to see my story through the lens of God's truth, turns out that's taking a lifetime. I'm learning the depth to which the gospel shifts reality. And every time I encounter brokenness, it is a reminder that I am dependent upon God. That my weakness is a perfect match for his strength. The gospel continues to unwind the stories that I have told myself. And by the grace of God, I'm learning how shame does not define me but the gospel does. I am learning that my worth does not hang on my most recent success or failure, but is displayed by the one who hung on the cross to purchase me as his own. And I am learning that God's story is a better story to live out of. And you know where I'm reminded of this most? I'm reminded of this when I come to the table 
of the Lord. As you grab your communion and peel back that top layer and take out the bread, I want to invite you to do something this morning which you, as you take of the elements. It, I want you to be reminded that this means that you are a part of something bigger than you. You see, this is not your body broken on your behalf. It is the body of Christ broken on your behalf. And just as all the grains of wheat are ground together to form one lump of dough and and that one loaf of bread, and then we all eat from that one loaf of bread, we are all partakers of God's story of redemption. We find our value, our worth, our meaning, and our purpose Not from what we do, but from what God has done on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your body, which was broken for us. Thank you that though we are marred by sin, we are redeemed by you. Thank you that your promise to us does not hang upon how perfect we get it, but it hangs upon your perfect character. You died, you promised forgiveness, and you gave it. Nothing is barred in that promise from us. And as we stand here, as we lay our lives and our stories open before you, We exchange our story for yours. We give our sin and receive your righteousness. We are reminded that we have been adopted into your family, become new creatures, headed for eternity and sent out with a mission. Thank you for your body, which is broken for us. Would you take and eat? Father, how many times I have come to the cup wrestling in my own heart and mind with believing that your blood is sufficient. Oftentimes my sin seems so great. Oftentimes my shame feels overwhelming. But here at the table, I remember that your shed blood has purchased my full redemption, that I am forgiven, that I'm made clean, not because of works of righteousness, not because I have enough devotions, not because I know enough scripture, but because of your covenant promise through your son that you would remember our sins no more. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. We receive once again the blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.